we're going to talk about cultural appropriation. It's kind of interesting to me how spooky and off limit this topic can really be. Well, on that note, let's get this party started. We never said this topic would be easy. It's way more interesting to tackle the hard stuff. So we're going to be trying to hit cultural appropriation from a whole different angle. But Courtney's right. This topic scares a lot of people. Why don't we give the basic definition? Sure. So the basic definition of cultural appropriation, the gist is it's the adoption of a culture that a person doesn't belong to. Judith shared this definition from Everyday Feminism with me, and I think it's actually really apt for our discussion today. So one of my favorite Everyday Feminism authors, Maisha Johnson, wrote, A deeper understanding of cultural appropriation also refers to a particular power dynamic in which members of a dominant culture take elements from a culture of people who have been systematically oppressed by that dominant group. And I know, it sounds convoluted, and if, mm -hmm. especially if you aren't invested in social justice jargon. A lot of people aren't. <laughs> a lot of people aren't. So what do things like power dynamics and dominant group, let alone systemically oppressed, really mean? Okay. So I think it's very important that we all get on the same page here. When we refer to power dynamics and dominant groups, we're referring to the way society has been structured to benefit some groups and not others. Like, if you picture America as a house with multiple levels of power, certain groups are above others. Those are the dominant groups, and the way those floors interact, how white people interact with blackness, how black people interact with Latinx people, are what we call power dynamics. That is a perfect analogy. It really ties in well also to what systematic oppression actually means. So systematic or systemic oppression refers to the larger construction of that house we're describing, basically. Describes the way we've built our society mm -hmm. and its power dynamics, leading to some groups to have less advantages than others. True. Also, I think we need to preface that we are not calling you racist if you've appropriated at some point. I can say that I have been in that category at For least sure. a couple of times in my life. Absolutely. We don't grow up with a how to not be racist mm -hmm. 101 handbook. True. Unfortunately. But... When you're growing up, if you're not taught this type of thing, you have no idea that what you're doing is harmful. Yeah, if, if life were just so simple. You know, I'd actually just settle for how to be a person handbook, though, but, you yeah. know. We aren't going to be doing cultural appropriation for beginners today, though, but we will have a list of resources for people who don't have a background in the topic. You know, we want to focus on issues that aren't usually talked about. So what topics are we really excited for today, Courtney? Personally, I am really hyped up for our conversation about the appropriation of food. Okay, that that's one's different. super. I know. <laughs> I'm really excited to get into that. What interests you the most? So we're kind of going to be talking about lateral appropriation, which nice. is kind of different. Um, so that's where people of color appropriate from other groups of people of color in fashion. So Halloween and music festivals are always being discussed, and they're, sure. they've been discussed to death. They're beating a dead horse at Absolutely. this point. But there are other fashion issues that are really interesting to talk about. Awesome. Well, are you ready to jump in? Let's go. Perfect. I think starting with lateral appropriation would be really cool. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the topics that I only ever see on the higher echelon of social justice groups and what they talk about, Yeah, this isn't something that mainstream America or mainstream anybody really is talking about. Do you yeah, agree? Yeah, for sure, I do. I think that one of the things that is kind of harmful is that we start out with the basics, 
but we never really go beyond that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's so cool that we get to talk about it today. Yeah. So starting with lateral appropriation, what what would you use for the definition? I think we're going to start off with that same metaphor we used earlier. Cool. Um, so I'm referring to the house metaphor we talked about in the intro kind of of today's topic. And so you're thinking of society as a house. Yes. Um, with multiple floors again. There are stairs this time because apparently we only had elevators last yeah. time. <laughs> so there are stairs and that's how you move around. But people usually stick to their own assigned floors. Yeah, so like when we built the house, we did intentionally confine specific groups to different areas. Mm -hmm. The people who were set up to succeed or be at the top, like Naturally. white people, men, Christian people, mm -hmm. they're what we refer to as dominant groups. But the other groups, like Latinx people, black folk, native people, and non-racial groups like women and queer people, they all experience subordination and oppression in different, but also some similar ways. Right. So... It's too simple to assume that all people experience the same types of oppression, or even that all racial groups have the same types of racism. What does bring up the question of whether lateral appropriation, which is the appropriation of oppressed groups by groups who aren't actively participating in their oppression, like black women appropriating native headdresses? I think the most interesting case, though, is the article we read about a black woman who was thinking about her use of African items. I really enjoyed that article. I think she made some really phenomenal mm -hmm. points. And so for me, the highlights were that she wanted to use the items as a means of connecting with her background. Because as we all know, the descriptor African-American usually refers to black people in America who are descendants of slaves. Right. And that's why it's African. That's as specific as they can get. They don't know anything beyond that about their heritage. So she was trying to reclaim that yeah. and experience different African cultures as a means of connecting with their past, but she wasn't able to relate to the items in the way that those cultures use yeah. them. But she was aware of the fact that her use of those items wasn't necessarily appropriate, and what I loved is that she really critically thought about how it would impact people of African descent or citizenship. Mm -hmm. So while reading this article, she talked about how that she was trying to honor her ancestry and how to do it without appropriating. Mm -hmm. So I really liked how she touched on that, how as a person of color you can appropriate, yeah. but that it's all about educating oneself. And if, you're, if you've educated yourself on the item of clothing, the music, food, for, for example, um, that's when it doesn't kind of formulate as appropriating. Yeah. Because when you've educated yourself, you understand where it's coming from, you know what it's about. It's, it's not about the surface. Exactly. And that's a lot of where the issue when it comes to the appropriation is the surface of whatever you're appreciating, quote-unquote yes. appreciating. It's like, are you wearing this headdress because you want to look cool? Yeah. Are you wearing it because you've been inducted into that tribe and you have earned the right? It's a lot of times these days it's just about being a hipster and being like, oh, this is the counterculture. Exactly. But as a black person, if I were to do that, then that's grounds for firing. Yeah, and she also brought that up as a very good point. Even though what she was doing was technically appropriation, when she dresses in traditional African dresses or listens to that music, as a black woman, she's still seen as very other. Mm -hmm. She's still seen as unprofessional, dirty, bad. Right. Whereas for a white person wearing that stuff, we'd probably be seen as very cool and edgy, just like fashion. Yeah. When people walk down the runway in African-inspired wear, it's always this sexy, fun thing. Mm -hmm. 
But when you put a black woman in those garments, suddenly they're dangerous. Right. It's. I really did admire her, and I. To bring it back to a personal level, yeah. as I was reading it, because um, I'm a first-generation American yeah. by way of West Africa from Ghana, and I, you know, even though I have that direct connection to what people would call the motherland, quote-unquote, yeah. I have a hard time with this because of the surface. Like, for sure. It's not like taught these things in America. <laughs> it's it's all white-centric and, like, yes. it's who conquered. We yes. only learn about who, who was conquered. But I did want to kind of bring it back to, like, when a white person does something in our yeah. society, how it's, like, great. So kind of to go off topic. We no do problem. that a lot. We do. Um, have you, when you go to the grocery store and you go to the pharmacy area yeah. and you're looking at the lotions, what, ha like, would you say that the shea butter industry has gotten super popular in the recent years? Oh my god, yes. So a little bit. So I worked at a CVS. Mm -hmm. The one thing that drove me crazy is that in the entire skincare hair care aisle, we had stuff like shea butter, all of that type of stuff marketed to white people. And then we had what was literally labeled as the ethnic hair care section. Mm -hmm. Was one tiny little shelf Which with the one? actual shea butter, with the actual argan oil and all of that that was like a fifth as expensive and never got bought. My thing is when I brought it up is like, so my mom, she used to kind of work in corporate, it's weird, but <laughs> she, we would actually use natural, Americans call it shea butter, we call it yes. shea butter. Yes. And it doesn't have all the, the perfumes. Exactly. So it's like, it, once it became appropriated in American culture and the white culture, mainstream, they added the perfumes and then it became acceptable to yeah. wear this. People used to tell her she smelled in her office yeah. because she was moisturizing. And For it's real. like, that's where it kind of sometimes, like that's what kind of I was thinking about it when we're talking yeah. about like how like there's that whiteness aspect, but like the not educating yourself on it. Yeah. Like nowadays it seems like everyone's like, yeah, shea butter, everything. But it's like, where did it come from? Do you understand the culture exactly. behind it? Do you know you can eat it? Right? That's a good one. I didn't know you could eat it. For real. <laughs> it also reminds me of yoga. Like, true. white people just thought, oh my God, what they a love fun yoga. I know. I mean, you guys love yoga. <laughs> <laughs> we do. That's the thing. So many white people are obsessed with yoga as a form of exercise, and it completely stripped it of its religious right. value. And the thing is, now all the yoga studios literally cost like 50 bucks a session, and the yoga teachers are all white. Mm -hmm. We have literally taken a religious practice and decided it's exercise. Do you think if we started an exercise that involved eating communion wafers, do you think we'd be laughed out of America or yeah, forced but out we'd of America? Be full. Yeah. Mm. Just saying. Can the can the communion wafers be vanilla wafers? Girl. So, <laughs> let's bring it back on top. <laughs> I think it is really awesome that you brought in that perspective of being a woman from Ghana but also growing up in America mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. Cuz we kind of have to discuss the limitations of identity in these conversations. Mm -hmm. So African-American, black, they're both important categories for people to understand their identity. But it's applied as this weird blanket label too often to the point right. that I have literally seen black British actors labeled African-American. That's not how it works. <laughs> no, if anything, they're African-British. Right? Like, they're literally not American. They're British? But we have this weird idea that African-American is all black people. Like, oh my gosh, That's another weird. good example. I was at work one day when I worked at a hotel. 
we had this 50, 60-year-old black man as a valet. He mm -hmm. was the best, and his name was Frank. Frank. A woman came Good up name. to me. She worked in, like, sales or marketing or something, and she was like, where's the, do you know where the, Afri do you know where the black, do you know where Frank is? I was like, why didn't you just use his name the first time? Right. But she couldn't bring herself to say black or African-American because she was like, which one of these words is appropriate to use in a workplace? And it's like, maybe you should ask him. Just, maybe you should ask him what word he likes used for him. Just don't <laughs> use Negro or color. Right? It's like, of all the words you can use, I'm pretty sure black and African-American are safe. As long as you're not talking about a British man. <laughs> or just, I get confused with myself because I, the blanket statement of African-American, exactly. I don't consider, like, when people ask me, like, oh, where are you? I'm like, technically, if we're going by the actual phrasing of the word, mm -hmm. I am African-American, but not really because that would make me more of a Ghanaian American. Yeah. But, like, I consider myself as just black yeah so, to make it simpler and I, I actually have friends that I've known since like third grade who are like I don't consider myself African-American because I'm not African anymore yeah if you think about it I'm just black so it's like this weird interpretation of themselves absolutely and I think it is worth noting that in social justice circles we usually have a pretty set definition of the words Nobody should tell anyone that's how they have to use them. Mm -hmm. If you decided that you wanted to be referred to as Ghanaian American, that's fine. But typically, I've noticed in social justice circles, black is the color descriptor. Mm -hmm. So that's African American people, people from Africa who immigrated here, mm -hmm. Jamaican people, people who are black. And then we use African American. As far as I have heard it, we almost always use that as the generic term for descendants of slaves. Right. The reason that we do that is because it is a piece of honoring where they came from, and it ties in a lot into black pride, African-American pride, as opposed to white pride, mm -hmm. where they have to have pride in their cultural black American identity because they are unable to have a cultural appreciation for their African heritage because they don't know. Just yeah. like your friend said, she doesn't know where she's from in Africa. And at this point, her and her family are just Americans. Yeah, I think that's another reason why I don't like to be labeled as African-American. Yeah. Because of that, like, whole cultural, historical yeah. background. Like, I mean, probably some family was taken on the slave ship. For sure. But for the most part, the family that we know, we were hiding in big old trees. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> historical fact. Right. And that's the <laughs> final one is usually the descriptor for people from Africa who have immigrated here is their mm -hmm. country name. It's like white, European, and French. Right. That's how it comes into play. And that that is how we conceptualize identity. It's not who we are. It's who we're not. It's that black people are not white. One thing I thought that would be cool to bring up is that white people don't really talk about being white in my experience. Right. And one thing I thought was really interesting that got brought up in one of our articles was that the kefia was actually a massive fashion trend when I was in school. But, of course, no one had any idea what the significance was. I found out two years into the trend, and I was flabbergasted because we had no idea. Mm -hmm. So what exactly is a kefia? So... The kefia is those scarves that you'll occasionally see. They're kind of bundled up around the neck and then come down to a point in the front and they have fringe hanging off of them. But the thing is, they're actually a symbol of Palestinian nationalism. It's literally a way for Palestinian people to signify their political dedication to their nationhood. It's gotten to the point that some places, like Urban Outfitters and American Apparel, 
sell those scarves as anti-war scarves. Which is kind of yeah. Yeah, lost for words. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I can see how this would be harmful to Palestinian people. Absolutely. Like, I think there's a benefit in everyone acknowledging the right of Palestine to sovereignty. But I like the analogy I read in an article about the keffiyeh. To the Palestinian author, the scarf represented the dignity and authenticity of their family. And their metaphor was comparing the fast fashion scarves, which refer to stuff like Forever 21, mm-hmm. mall stores that you go and pick these scarves up at. Those fast fashion scarves are like costume jewelry, whereas the keffiyeh is like your grandmother's heritage locket. Mm-hmm. That hand-me-down that's been in your family for eons, as far as you know. Yeah, I like that analogy. I want to see more people talk about nationalism and the identities that are portrayed through clothing. No yeah. one really talks about that as much. Because if we're really thinking about it, clothing does define and signify how we think about ourselves. It really does. I think it's important to also note that what we choose to wear has a lot of ramifications for how we're perceived. Mm-hmm. Gay men wearing uh, certain clothes are seen as less or more gay, things like that. That kind of leads into your opinion about food and cultural appropriation, so let's get into that topic. You're wondering how eating foreign food could possibly be harmful. You know, honestly, I do want to know. What do you mean when you say there's appropriation in food? We always assume cultural appropriation forbids people from doing anything that doesn't belong to their culture. Or, as I've literally seen it written, tells people to, quote-unquote, stay in their cultural lane. It's not the case, though. Yeah, it's really more about respect, you know? So if your friend told you that you were hurting them, you're going to stop doing that, right? Yeah. So that's the same when it comes to cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. So, like, like you were talking about shea butter and your mother, they're usually mocked for specific foods. Like, who hasn't heard someone complain about the smell of curry or fish paste? And curry is delicious. It is. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm probably sure if we go to a curry restaurant right now, Everyone in there is going to be white. But it's like if I brought curry for lunch, no one's going to bat an eye. They're going to think I'm cultured. They're going to think I'm so cool. Oh, my God, Courtney. She's eating Thai food. Oh, my God. How brave. Right? I I could never do that. Water is just a little too spicy for me. Yeah. That type of thing. (laughs) Okay. But, but, yeah, to go back to the topic, <laughs> so when you were just talking about how, like, people are generally mocked for the specific foods they eat, that, I literally had that happen to me when I was in third grade. So I took this, so it's called gari, but, like, that's really just, like, the base of it. But, like, okay. I'm, I'm uncultured, I guess, with my own culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, like, it's, like, seasoned with, like, ground tomatoes and, like, onions yeah. and, like, salt and pepper and some oil. And... Sardines. I like sardines. If you're going to buy sardines, only buy Titan. They're the best. And um, I took it on the bus, and I was so excited. I was like, I'm going to eat this for lunch today. And the kids on the bus made fun of me for it. They're like, it's smelly. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm not going to eat this for lunch. Literally before school started, I took it to the bathroom, and I flushed it. And I really was so excited that day, and I ended up just being sad. And I was like, mm. Yes, I'm not eating that for lunch. That those stories always break my heart because that is not a unique story. It's just that's it's ridiculous. That's the worst part. So many people experience that, and it's so sad because if you think about it, if I was really excited for that cheese and tomato sandwich because that was my favorite food as a kid, <laughs> if somebody made fun of me for that, I don't know what I would do. I would feel Wait, not what only now? Atta- cheese and tomatoes. Yes, white Wonder Bread with the slice of American Kraft cheese and a slice of tomato. Is the bread at least toasted? No. 
You know what? Let me not make fun of you because <laughs> we're, we're here to not not do that. Okay. <laughs> In my defense, my sister ate it with mayonnaise, and I did not. <laughs> You know what? You just got more points. Cool. I'm <laughs> glad to hear. <laughs> but seriously, that's the thing. Like, if somebody told me as a kid that that was disgusting, it wouldn't even just be that I can't eat the food that I really like. It would be, is my family weird? Right. Does that make my family bad? Mm -hmm. Do I not fit in because my family is different? And that's what I think of when I think of little kids being made fun of for their curry, for their gari, for all of that type of stuff. It's... Oh, God. And not only are they dogged for enjoying that traditional food in places that we've coded as American, like offices and schools, mm -hmm. but their food's, like, seriously co-opted by restaurants, too. Okay. So this is where I think the listeners are going to be hesitant to agree. Fair enough. So the question they're probably going to be thinking right now, is it really a problem for a white person to open up, say, a Thai restaurant? Okay. Not necessarily. There's obviously value in learning to cook food from other cultures. But there are two really important things that we miss when we reduce the issue to asking who has the right to make certain foods. The first issue is that a lot of these authors touch on is how white restaurant owners generally have more access to money. True. To buy fancy venues, staff it with fancy white waiters, and decorate it with fancy white created art that mimics traditional art from those cultures. Mm -hmm. And then they sell dishes of things like banh mi for $15 or even $20 a plate. Is it is a small portion, too? Of course it is. Oh, God. So I see where you're going with this. It's basically gentrification, but of the food industry. They are a food culture populated by people of color, and then it's being taken over by white people who wind up pricing them out, and they have a lot of rent hikes and luxury stores, basically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at Yelp reviews of white-owned Mexican restaurants, mm -hmm. half the time people compliment them for so-called authentic food that's in a so-called... Safe neighborhood. What do they mean by safe? Okay, let's be 100% real right now, guys. That means white. Okay? Absolutely. And the sad part is the places that are quote-unquote sketchy, mm -hmm. that's where the good food usually is. Absolutely. Like, it, I'll go in a sketch neighborhood for some good ribs, I'm just saying. Right? So the problem <laughs> is that taco. they want to participate in the culture by scarfing down free salsa, but they don't want to actually have to go to a Mexican neighborhood. But if they did they'd be supporting Mexican business owners who invest in their communities, and that would be a net good. Okay, I, I, I'll buy that. But you mentioned two issues, Courtney. The second issue is how we treat eating foreign foods as participation in cultural learning and expansion. And, like, yes, there's value to it, but there's also some problems. So you're meaning, like, the people who eat pho at the campus center and think that they're cultured? Yes, absolutely. How can you reduce the vibrancy of Vietnamese culture and food down to a tin of vegetable broth with some noodles dumped in it. It's, I don't know, it's just like expecting that ramen out of like the Nissen box, which is the worst kind of ramen you can right. buy, is gonna be the same kind of ramen you can get at a restaurant when they put like pork yes. and egg and all these like different vegetables that are fresh. Yes, the nice chives, the corn, it's like, yes, I will never deny that I absolutely love instant ramen. It's a comfort food that I've been eating since I was a kid. And, and that's the thing. When we think Japanese food, we think ramen, but we don't think ramen. We think instant, instant. ramen. Mm -hmm. Just like we think Mexican, we see tacos. We think Chinese, we see orange chicken. Yes, right. it's absolutely valuable to participate in cultural exchange, which is when a culture invites people from other groups to learn more about them. Right. So, like, to go off of that, when 
what people see in America when they think of different yes. cultures and their food. I mean, General Tso's chicken, for one, is an American concoction, like, for Christ's right? sakes. Like, it's still delicious, though. Don't get me wrong. For sure. <laughs> Love me some General Tso's chicken, because yes. I have a sweet tooth. But I've never understood why people think eating food makes them multicultural. Neither have I. And, of course, it's never going to be about telling people they can't eat salsa or whatever. Because salsa good. Get some queso, some right? chips. It's important to patronize the businesses that are authentically representative of their culture and mm -hmm. invest in keeping those cultures economically viable. It's just like, don't go to Walmart to buy Mexican yes. groceries. Go to an actual Mexican or Hispanic grocery store. Exactly. It's, it's ridiculous. Walmart wasn't stocking these items until a few years ago, and it's only because they realized yep. there was a market. Yep. So it's like now you're pushing these small mom-and-pop shops out of the way so that you can have convenience. Let's off not forget, Walmart gets their things from sweatshop working. Yep. They don't pay their workers well. We technically subsidize their labor through welfare. The biggest welfare queen <laughs> in this country, man. Exactly. That's a whole other topic for a whole other podcast. That's right. all I'm going to say. So, I have a question. Have you ever been to Abyssinia? Mm -mm. I've never even heard of it. Oh, cool. So... It's near 74th Street, and it's an Ethiopian restaurant. Okay. The owners are Ethiopian. They make their injera every morning by hand. Their injera is phenomenal. So What exactly is that? Can you tell me? It's kind of like a bread. Okay. So the really cool thing about Ethiopian food is that typically you're seated around a circular table, mm -hmm. and a piece of injera is laid flat. Okay. So it's thin like a tortilla, a little bigger than that, but it's a very porous bread that you use as your utensil. And the thing is... Going to that restaurant, rather than a white-owned Ethiopian place, it's a way to experience the cultural values inherent in how we do food. And that's mm -hmm. the thing. Like, when you go to these Ethiopian restaurants where they serve authentic food in an authentic mm -hmm. way, people always complain because they're like, oh, they're so loud. This Ethiopian food is so good. And <laughs> the cool thing to me is that when you sit around that circular table and they place the injera, they then dump like portions onto it and you all just share from it right it's a communal it's a communal thing. eating experience it's a way to connect with the people you're eating with right the way that we think of sitting around the dinner table is like some really hardcore dedication to family time it's like nah fam that's no. not it's not that hard <laughs> exactly and it's a cultural value that we just don't have necessarily not anymore at least it's yeah. like some of that aspect of american culture white culture has been like washed out yeah. with like um, the advancement of technology sure. and the quote-unquote advancement of society mm -hmm. and civility and being like cultured. I put double quotes on the yeah. word cultured because it's like once you've advanced to a certain point of society, it's like we've forgotten that. Absolutely. And then we look down on other cultures who still want that aspect of yes. their life to continue. It's weird. It's like trying to say that siestas aren't good for you. I think so too. Like, <laughs> um... Yeah, so I want to say that it's really important to emphasize that there's nothing wrong with liking Mexican food or yes. any type of food. And, you know, I'm someone who likes Taco Bell because I'm For a lazy sure. person. But, like, I'm never going to be like, oh, I'm getting authentic and then drive through the <laughs> drive through right. Taco Bell. But that's just, like, an easy fix to, you know, a craving. Yeah. Going to Mexican-owned businesses is the best way to get authentic food and to show your appreciation. Yes. It's, you're helping them stay in business, and you're just helping that community as well. Absolutely. Like, the way I was talking about Walmart and grocery stores, you don't want them to go out of business because once they go out of business, then we've lost an aspect of that culture here yes. in our own culture. I like the conversations leading pretty closely to music and appropriation, mm -hmm. too. Yeah, that's 
absolutely correct. So what are the similarities that you see between food and music? Uh, I think that the way we treat food as a cultural commodity that proves our multiculturalness reminds me a lot of the way we treat music. Mm -hmm. Who owns different types of music? So is it the people who created it? Mm -hmm. Is it the people who pay for it? Is mm -hmm. it the people who appreciate it? Okay. So when you say the people who appreciate it, I assume you're talking about people like white rappers mm -hmm. and who got started because they resonated more clearly with their lyrics than any other genre. Yeah, so Elephant in the Room, Iggy Azalea, number one example of this. Yes, she claims that she got into rap music because it was the most relevant music to her growing up poor in Australia. And as good as that may be, that doesn't excuse Iggy Azalea having this weird black scent, is what they call it. This weird That's attempt to, to sound black. <laughs> yeah. Never heard the term. I've, I understand the concept, yeah. but I've never heard of black scent. I hate the word Urban because dictionary. I'm like, what in the world is a black accent? But she is trying to mimic that southern hip-hop sound of people like that. True. I mean, it probably does resonate with the fact that T.I., yes. she is on his label, and he is from Atlanta. Yeah. So, I mean, some, I like to give some of these people benefits of the doubt. Maybe but I just was... got stuck in there. Like, <laughs> And it's like, I get that. <laughs> and it's, but the thing is, Iggy Azalea is from Australia. True. She wasn't, like, literally, there are articles about her where people who were near her at the start of her career were like, girl, you cannot rap. You suck at rapping. Stop <laughs> it. And then she adopted this, like, Southern American hip-hop voice mm -hmm. and suddenly became super famous. She's not black, though. Right. For real, if Iggy Azalea got pulled over, no cop would mistake her for a black woman. Of course not. So she gets her money playing off this sense of blackness. Yes. But she won't ever have to deal with being black. I agree. So even if she had rapped with an Australian accent... We all know she probably still would have made more money than black women, knowing the way that white women are way more accepted in industries than black women. She would have started a whole new genre. Absolutely. It reminds me of Crayshawn, though. Do you remember her song, Gucci Gucci? I think when I was, like, a freshman in high school. Yeah, I was a junior <laughs> in high school. It was 2011. Here's the thing. She dropped out of music for a long time. and. She hasn't returned, but she talked about why. Okay. Did you see any of the news about that? No. So the thing is, she started out making music as this broke Oakland girl. Okay. She did a lot of this really weird appropriation where she was very involved in the community mm -hmm. in Oakland. So it wasn't that she was adopting it. It was who she was. Yeah. But, oh, my God, looking at some of her pictures and videos and names and stuff, it's weird. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, she actually dropped out of music to make more space for women of color. Right. So she emphasized that even as a broke Oakland girl, she really didn't have a right to take up the space that those women of color really deserved. Mm -hmm. She knew that as a white musician, she was afforded opportunities that black women never get. I think it's great that she was aware of her privilege. But did she really need to drop out of music entirely? I mean, that song was pretty decent. It was catchy. It was. And the thing is, I don't know whether she needed to drop out entirely. Like, on one hand, she did something awesome. Mm -hmm. She made more space for women of color to come into the music. On the other hand, her brief career did spawn a pretty decent business, and she still makes good money. And even though she dropped out, it's not like many rappers came up in her, her wake. Exactly. So. so it's like, yeah, she did something good, but it wasn't even a risk for her. And if she had stayed in music, getting that notoriety that she was at the time, she may have had the opportunity to give that platform to black women. Like, right. she could have them produce for her, rap on her tracks or whatever. Right. There were a lot of options available to her, and that's part of her privilege. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel you, but 
Is it really fair to criticize her? I do always kind of feel gross for judging someone for not knowing everything at the exact right time. I always think of when Northwest was born. Kim Kardashian West caught a lot of flack for opening up about learning about racism through the horrible comments people made about her daughter. Mm -hmm. And sure, she should have known way earlier, especially being married to Kanye and adopting black items like cornrows. But isn't it good she came to it eventually? Mm -hmm. Or even do we need to put the onus on people to educate themselves first? I mean, sometimes too, we're in like a, if we're using her as an example, yeah. we're in a weird space, seeing yeah. as she's Armenian. Exactly. So she, she's perceived as white, but she doesn't have that whole sense of whiteness. Yes, and I always get tripped up when we talk about people like her because she is Armenian. Yeah. It's kind of sad that when we see right. Kim Kardashian West, we see white. Right. She's not white. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where that urge to adopt blackness came from within her. Yeah, and she's even erased some of her own yes. Armenian, like, features. Absolutely. So, there's a whole other, like, sect with that. But yeah. for the question about the onus of people having to educate themselves first, I don't think we can ever really answer that question because yeah. there's a lot to be said about education and everyone's responsibility and not forcing women of color to do all of the educating. You're completely right. Like, I think one of the best examples was Nicki Minaj calling Miley Cyrus out. Mm -hmm. White artists need to do that. Right. It doesn't need to be Nicki Minaj constantly doing that. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, Macklemore actually put out a song called White Privilege 2. Okay. He had a song called White Privilege before he got famous. Right. But in White Privilege 2, he specifically calls out Miley Cyrus, Iggy Azalea, and even Elvis as people who profited off of blackness. I like how he started with Elvis. Right. <laughs> And the thing is, Miley Cyrus is a special case. She's made very racist comments since she's sort of shrugged off that black identity she decided to co-opt. Mm -hmm. But Macklemore doing that really does have importance no matter how anyone feels about him. Right. White artists need to be calling out other white artists. So who do you think owns the music? The creators or the listeners? Honestly, I think it needs to be sort of a community property that can be bought into, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, I do think hip-hop and rap are black property. They belong to black people. But I don't think that means no white people could ever take part. Okay. If they're going to, though, they need to be cognizant of the space they take up, how they amplify their friends of color in the industry, and give right. back to the people who made it possible for them to play this type of music. So, um... Does Eminem fall into the right category? Because <laughs> I have to ask. He's my favorite rapper. Okay. And if we're looking at his track record, that's yes. it. Yes. Um, when he started becoming famous, he did bring his friends with him. Yes. And they're so, not, most of them are black. If we're looking at all pictures, he does not have any white friends. Right. So as for Eminem, now that you have spoken to liking him, I will admit that I love Macklemore. It's embarrassing. I call him my guilty pleasure because I know there's better musicians but, like, other side, when he raps about his addictions and things, ugh, I love him. <laughs> and that's the thing. We can all like problematic people. Right. We don't have to make sure everybody's credentials are perfect before mm -hmm. we enjoy their music. I mean, not even all the black rappers are... Right. No, that's a whole other topic, because most yeah. of them are a little iffy right about now. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. I always call Kanye West my problematic fave. I love Kanye West. Ooh, but no, he's... He He's gross. He went off the deep end. He did, saying stuff like he married Kim Kardashian because his kids need to be mixed because they're the most beautiful. I didn't even hear of that. Yeah. Okay, then. Yeah. 
And for people like Eminem and Macklemore who are trying their hardest to do it well and mm -hmm. to do it right, I think they need to be in those spaces. Okay. Something I try to tell people is that as white people, we have a responsibility to speak up, call people out or mm -hmm. in, or just be available to teach. Right. We need to stop worrying about being perfect. Mm -hmm. If it's messy, so be it. At least we did the right thing. White people do need to be cognizant of the space they take. This idea of giving back is really important. It ties a lot to the idea of fashion and how designs are co-opted, you know? I definitely agree. Like, for example, I personally love Native American fashion. Mm -hmm. But when I say that, most people think of, like, geometric patterns, lots of triangles, and these bold red and blue colors. and Dream catchers. That's not it. Exactly. Like, so my boyfriend bought me leggings and a tank top from Jamie Okuma's fashion line, and I'm so excited. Like, most people aren't going to look at them and think Native American, but rather than buy a fake Native costume, why wouldn't I support artists who create work I enjoy? Right. That's a big issue. There's an entire law prohibiting people from advertising items as quote-unquote Native American without the documentation. That's very true. So it's called the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, and it does have its own problems, like the definition of Native American, but it's one of the only ways that Native people have recourse against businesses that copy and steal their traditional designs and profit off of them. So, um, hint, hint, Urban Outfitters? Yes, exactly. <laughs> The Navajo Nation actually took them to court over their sale of items branded as Navajo, sometimes spelled with a J, other times with an H, and they did eventually oh settle out of court. Yeah, think about Navajo, Navajo as an Urban Outfitters brand. That's What did they even claim as their defense? Because it, it seems like Urban Outfitters, they were in a clear violation. Well, okay, they actually tried to argue that Navajo was a generic term. Hmm? So did you know Thermos, which we use to describe a vacuum seal container, mm -hmm. that used to be a brand name. Yeah, I know. I think I have an actual Thermos. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. It started out as a brand name. It wasn't a generic word at first. Right. But it became a generic term in about 1963, if I recall correctly, mm -hmm. when the courts ruled that it couldn't be trademarked because it was so general. Okay, but the, a commercial item? Yeah. So I don't understand how they can use that for a whole people Exactly. That's, that isn't... <sighs> yeah. Speechless again. <laughs> it's almost why it's so tricky. Because Navajo is a nation. America's a nation as well, though, and we constantly sell, quote-unquote, American items like flag bikinis. Which is a clear violation of the flag code. Let's put that out there as well. <laughs> so the reason the Navajo and their derivative designs is trademarked is because it is much cheaper to buy Navajo panties from Urban Outfitters for like $7.00 which is still way too much for panties. Oh, yeah. But it's cheaper than to invest in a piece of clothing made by a native person from the Navajo Nation. It's just another example of pricing people out. If urban outfitters can mass-produce Navajo designs, they make all of the profit off of the nation. And that's the difference. The American people as a whole do not own the flag. They don't own the symbols of America mm -hmm. the way that the Navajo people do. Right. So I find it very disgusting how companies can profit off of cultural items like dream catchers. Ugh, don't get me started on dream catchers. What about tattoos of dream catchers? Don't 
start with me. <laughs> it does remind me of a point I wanted to make, though. So even though the IACA is a law, there's a lot of issues with enforcing it. Mm-hmm. For example, I love Etsy. Okay, go ahead. But there are so many stores that offer Dreamcatcher smudge kits and even headdresses. But there's no official oversight in getting your items listed, so there's no enforcement unless they're reported to Etsy by consumers. Right. And okay, I will admit that whenever I come across those listings, I report them to Etsy with a link to the IACA text. Here's the thing. I can literally pull Etsy up right now, type in Native American, and I guarantee that this one store I see constantly, I did this yesterday to see if it was still up. (laughs) Their items are made in Indonesia, and they offer various quote-unquote ethnic items. That's their branding. Or exotic items. Like, literally, it's stuff like dashikis, even. But they even have war bonnet listings. Oh, God, that is disgusting. Headdresses, they're a sacred item when it comes to Native American people. They're limited to people who have earned the right to wear them and are, you know, a religious exactly. item. They're not fashion. Exactly. The, not all Native Americans used headdresses. The ones that did use them in a very specific way. It's like if I wore a nun's habit to Coachella. Or if you wore, what's that, priest collar? And you're yes. like, yep, yeah, that's my new tie now. Exactly. So, I'll pose the question. Is there ever going to be a time when wearing a headdress is appropriate? For non-natives? Hell no. (laughs) Right? (laughs) There's always a wiggle room for some of the stuff we talk about, but sacred items aren't something debatable. Yes. Dia de Muertes is coming up, and that's a major one that throws a lot of people off. Yeah, like most people think of it as Mexican Halloween, and it's not... No, they don't just paint sugar skulls on their face to look cool for their Halloween costume. Dia de Muertes is a religious observance that's been traced back to the Aztec celebration. The sugar skull... Katrina's, because all of that. Yeah, they aren't just a fun outfit to put on for Halloween. Dia de Muertes is an important religious event for Mexicans that involves honoring their deceased. For real. Like, if the way I honored my dead family was used as a costume, I would be so upset. It's a very personal thing. And even if your intentions are good, mm-hmm. you're mocking their literal honoring of their ancestors. Especially if you're not even doing it correctly. Exactly. If you're going to the 99 cent store and buying Ugh. a costume, you're not being respectful. At all. So it's, it's no, exactly. The litmus test should be asking yourself, do I want to wear it because it looks cool? If so, stop right there. Don't wear it and do the research on its significance. And okay, if your answer is no, you're not just wearing it to look cool, what is your answer? Because honestly, if it's beyond something like, I want to honor the vibrancy of Mexican culture and do so in a culturally appropriate way by participating in it as an observer and knowing my place and buying my items from Mexican artists, if it's not that, you need to stop too. Yeah. I could go all day talking about the way we've adopted non-white holidays, but I know you had another topic you really wanted to hit on. I do. I feel like I've been dominating this episode because I have so many things that really (laughs) fascinate me about it. But I was really eager to discuss Kylie Jenner on the cover of Interview Magazine. It's the one where she's in a latex bodysuit, a choker with a lobbed haircut sitting in a wheelchair. Yeah, that one was weird, and I looked at those pictures, and it didn't make sense. Yeah. It's not art. And at the time, she was only 18, but I don't think ignorance is really a good excuse, especially considering how she's continued to appropriate cultures. Absolutely. There are a lot of reasons she could offer for posing that way. She's always tried to make excuses for her appropriation, but there's a ton of issues with it. Like, for one, a wheelchair is not a fashion accessory. Yeah, it's kind of weird to see someone sexualizing a wheelchair. It's not It's not right. That's one of the main issues with their photo shoot. 
people with disabilities, especially advanced physical disabilities that require mobility aids, they're desexualized to a point of being as non-sexual beings entirely. Mm -hmm. They're really just seen as extensions of their aids. They're called wheelchair bound, for example, rather than the other way around where the chair is an extension of a person. Mm -hmm. So they're not even really seen as humans, but objects. Right, and sexualizing a wheelchair is pushing the objectification even further. But exactly, it makes people who use wheelchairs even less human, the way that objectification makes women less human. Mm -hmm. Wheelchair users are positioned as the object of so many things, like the object being worked on by doctors or the object being propelled by the chair. Mm -hmm. And Jenner's magazine shoot did not help that at all. She has a very dead behind the eyes look, like she really leaned into the idea of being an object. Oh my god, that shoot had such a weird robotic feel. Like, the copper-colored latex bodysuit made her look like a literal robot. And using a wheelchair was really grotesque there. She even lifts her foot out of the chair to gaze at her shoe. It's like, she wants to use that wheelchair as a sexy prop, but she can't even allow the viewer to think for half a moment that she could possibly actually need it. Because mm -hmm. if she needed the wheelchair, she'd be less human. Right. But no, she emphasizes the fashion nature of the shoot by gazing at her inordinately expensive shoes from her copper-plated wheelchair. It's honestly not a part of appropriation we talk about too much, so it's a good thing we brought it up today. I agree. It doesn't make the news often, because like in reality, disability is seen very much as either or. Mm -hmm. Disability isn't one single defect. It's a spectrum of ability. Mm -hmm. Someone with a disability might have full use of their legs, but require a cane because of their limp. Well, someone else may have a spinal neurostimulator to ease their chronic pain. Okay. And of course, there's also mental and emotional disabilities to take into account. But I've only seen this story about Jenner and a story about able-bodied actors playing disabled people on television. That's it. Do you think it's because it doesn't happen so much? I don't think so. Like, the acting roles always go to able-bodied people. A notable exception is Jamie Brewer, an actress with Down Syndrome, who's well known for roles on the series American Horror Story, for example. But other than her, I can't name any disabled actors off the top of my head. Why do you think it's not talked about as much? Honestly, I think it's because disability is such a broad term. Most groups who deal with appropriation have commonalities along things like skin color or mm -hmm. language or religion. But disabled people come in so many ways that there's no ability to lump them all together to make a single activism group. You know, that is completely true. You can't see all disabilities either. So a lot of people with invisible disabilities wouldn't even be included if you ask someone to point out disabled people on the street. You're completely right. I do want to make sure we reiterate a few points before we go. So first, let's try to summarize. What even was the point of this entire episode? To be specific, we want to point out just how harmful cultural appropriation can really be and that the basic discussion centered around Halloween costumes misses a lot of the point. There's a ton of stuff that surrounds that, but it's impossible to know everything. Yeah, and along those lines, to anyone listening, I would ask, now that you know how harmful cultural appropriation can be, are you going to stop? It's important that we acknowledge that doing this type of thing doesn't make you a bad person. Willfully ignoring the people who tell you it's harmful, though, that's just rude. Exactly. Don't be the person who acts in their own best interest to the detriment of others. So, if you want to adopt something from another culture, ask yourself, do I just want to look cool? Do I understand the significance of this item? Or, you know, ask someone from that culture, and if they tell you it's harmful, knock it off. So, mm -hmm. thanks again for listening to Culture is Not a Costume, the second episode of Hash It Out. 
We say this every week, but it's important. We want you to continue the conversation. What did we miss? What questions do you have? Did we get the conversation wrong? Exactly. Where could we have spoken more? Where would you have liked to see the conversation go? Mm -hmm. You can always find us on Twitter or Instagram at sjed underscore IUPUI, on Facebook as Social Justice Education IUPUI, or use our hashtag, hash it out IUPUI. We'll be monitoring all of those. Of course, all those details are available in our episode description below. Let us know what you think. Take care, and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you on October 27th. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Bye.